Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great episode we have today. I'm joined by Dr. Antonios Nestoras. And Antonios is the Policy and Research Coordinator at the Policy and Research Unit in the European Liberal Forum. So we're a little bit in-house today. However, Antonio joins me on the podcast because we're going to go into the work that is done by the Working Group on Foreign Affairs, Neighborhood and Enlargement, which is one of the working groups at the Policy and Research Unit that helps to bridge the gap between the academic and the think tank world and the policy making necessary for the European Union to keep progressing. And in this particular, for this conversation, we're going to talk about the enlargement of the EU. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this week of May. I'm here with Antonios Nestoras. Antonios, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Ricardo. Oh, it's great to have you here. And I've been trying to have you for some time now on the pod. And apparently, in the next couple of episodes, we're going to have the company of Antonios here because there's so many things that are going on and they're very interesting to talk about. But today, I asked Antonios to come to the podcast and talk a little bit about the work you do as a policy and research coordinator at the Policy and Research Unit inside the European Liberal Forum. But before we get into that, Let's get to know you a little better. How did you get here to this point where you have this position inside the European Liberal Forum? First, uh, let me tell you that, as you can see, I was not playing hard to get, but we had a lot of work uh, in progress. I thought it was charming. <laughs> but all this work is uh, you know, coming to fruition uh, slowly, and we are getting ready to present the most recent and the most relevant of the work we're doing uh, now. So I'm happy to be here and start uh, presenting about myself um, and what I do and how did I get here. Well, I'm originally I'm from Greece, but I've been living in the Benelux countries for 15 years now. I started in the Netherlands. I, got my PhD in Belgium. And I can say I have worked from many, many different positions here in the Brussels uh, ecosystem. I worked in the European Parliament. I worked with the ALDE party, the ALDE group, as it was called uh, back then. Now it is renewed. Think tanks around uh, the EU uh, policy ecosystem, the university. I've been teaching for six or seven years now. And uh, I'm a kind of a, of a hybrid between the academic and the, and the policy work uh, worlds. I've seen how both of these worlds work from the inside. I've seen that uh, sometimes they're not uh, synchronized uh, enough in the sense that academic research takes a lot of time, uh, but uh, policymakers need to work in a very rapidly changing uh, environment with different needs uh, and different uh, urgencies and sometimes different priorities. So this is the essence of the work I'm trying to do for the uh, European Liberal Forum as, as head of policy and research, or part of it at least, uh, trying to bridge the gap between uh, academics, practitioners, experts, scholars, and the needs of our the policymakers, especially the policymakers from our political family, the liberal family in Europe. And, and uh, of course, this is 
uh, a tall order. It's tough and difficult and cannot be solved uh, easily. But, uh, you know, we try to contribute in two ways, making the um, research more accessible to policymakers, but at the same time, uh, taking input insights from the policymakers and the practitioners in order to help our researchers and our experts uh, realign their priorities, anticipate uh, policy needs and be more prepared and more impactful when we finally have uh, work, uh, policy-oriented research work ready to present to our policymakers. Yeah, so for, for the past year, we have focused a lot on uh, creating uh, publication formats, uh, research formats, a series of uh, ELF papers. Uh, we have launched an academic journal, the Future Europe Journal, which is an open access peer review journal sitting somewhere between academic work and policy, policy work. Uh, the first issue was uh, launched in um, December last year. We're already waiting for the uh, final practicalities for the second issue that is focusing on the extremely important uh, topic of inflation. We have created a series that we call Liberal Reads, which is a summary of uh, classical liberal works. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it has a written format, it has an audio format, it's a, it's a podcast. It's not competing with you, of course. It's, I hope so. Uh, <laughs> it's a different kind of uh, animal. And uh, this year we focused a lot on creating or developing the concept of our working groups that we will talk uh, later. Again, in the same spirit, trying to uh, connect and bring together policymakers and practitioners with academics and experts from our network, help them work better together and improve the kind of work that we're doing. I'm going to put on the show links of the podcast way for our listeners to go and visit the Future of Europe Journal and also Liberal Reads. And maybe one day we can go into uh, a little more detail about the way you create such products like this one, Antonio's. But before we move on into the working groups, this is a fascinating conversation because for people outside the system, this gap between doing research, doing academic work, and then transform it to policy and policy making. Let's stay here for a little more because how stressful it is then to have those two worlds converge where from one side you have the go, go, go needs of, okay, have, everything has to happen in a four-year span or a two-year span. And then you have the academic research, which is, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> this takes a little more long, longer than that. So go a little bit into that. Yeah, uh, both worlds have different uh, needs and different uh, uh, priorities and different uh, objectives. Yeah. So um, in principle, the academic world does not aim to change the world or at least in principle it shouldn't try to change the world so much uh, whereas policymakers are you know they have different aiming and especially I mean for take for example the digitalization uh, theme we're talking about legislation regulation that is affecting our everyday lives because <clears throat> we have uh, so many, new technologies that have created policy needs that are urgent, you know, they cannot 
uh, wait for two or three years for research to take the regular course of the, the regular academic course, drafting, peer reviewing, editing, literature reviewing, and, 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 and so on. But there is a way to, to bridge uh, this gap. Uh, it needs collaboration from both sides, of course. Uh, and it, everything starts from the fact that they ha- uh, the two worlds have to realize that they need uh, each other. Otherwise, there is a, a detachment. The academics go their own ways, they, they, they're, they're with their own pace. Uh, some of them are very strict with uh, the academic uh, uh, standards, um, uh, whereas the policymakers, they want everything to go quickly because they have, uh, they, they have this sense of uh, urgency and uh, rightfully, rightfully so. Bridging this gap, of course, can be stressful, it can be tough, but you can say that for any other kind of uh, business. Of course, there's nothing special about it. And it's, you, we have to build a community. This is mm-hmm. the way I look at it. When you are successful in building a community, and you have to do that even in, in the classroom, as I said, I'm, I'm teaching at the university uh, a few courses uh, every year. Inside the, the classroom, you have to create a community of, of learning. Uh, it's not simply lecturing time all, all the time. It's creating the conditions mm-hmm. for the students to learn. And it's, it's not the same. It's similar where, what we're trying to do with both our publication formats and our, and our working groups to create a nice community of people that are passionate, interested, working on specific topics, and they learn uh, together and they realign their purposes and their priorities together. So it's uh, it takes a lot of networking. It takes a lot of people skills. Um, you have to give it a bit of a structure, like uh, regular meetings, online meetings, in-person meetings common working documents, common written uh, outputs, but of course also uh, some uh, fun activities and uh, uh, bringing people together where they can freely discuss and uh, create connections with with each other. That's, again, uh, a very quick uh, summary of what we're trying to do. Community. Community is the key word. Just to paint a little more to what you just said, because it was very interesting that you brought up the digitalization example because studying the process of the Digital Services Act inside the European Union is very interesting to see. All right, we're going to make these changes and we need to know what is the effect of the changes. So we need the academic world to study those changes and then we hope that they can give us some information to see if our policy is correct or if we need to change something. So that is the normal cycle, the the good cycle of retro feedback and uh, exactly working together as you were mentioning. Now getting into the working groups, please tell our listeners a little more about what is the uh, idea behind it. We bring people together and we work together. It's nice to work together with other people, uh, especially when uh, they're passionate about the same stuff that you are passionate about. Uh, When we do uh, work, uh, common work, we are all uh, researchers uh, uh, and or slash uh, practitioners on the same on the same uh, topics. We work daily on the same topics, and the idea is to 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 bring everyone together in one forum where we can discuss, 
where we can exchange ideas, where we can exchange best practices. And this, since we're talking about uh, a European liberal forum, it also has you know, the additional advantage of, of a, multi, a multicultural uh, environment. Uh, we bring together not only uh, people from different uh, positions, practitioners, academics, experts, think tankers, scholars, and so on. We're also bringing together um, people from uh, different uh, EU nationality, with different cultures, with different uh, languages, with different historical trajectories, uh, you may say, into uh, the EU uh, framework. And this is really uh, enriching uh, the, the, the work. It needs uh, some time. Uh, and it needs uh, a lot of good intentions. Uh, it needs some structure as well. But uh, ultimately, the way I've seen it, it's, it's working wonders for, uh, for the impact that we're trying to have on the policymaking uh, side. We started with uh, uh, creating groupings, teams of uh, people inside the network and uh, including additional independent academics from the universities and, and so on. Last year, we had two very successful working groups, one on China and one on EU social policy last year uh, with concrete outcomes. So not just abstract policy proposals and recommendations, but for example, the, the working group on China uh, really uh, contributed in drafting the new uh, EU strategy on China report that was voted later last year in the European uh, Parliament. Uh, we were very proud of uh, the output of that working group and the way that we supported the rapporteur of uh, the report in the European Parliament, uh, MEP Hilde Voutmans. The report the, the, was very well received. It was voted. Uh, of course, it, it followed the regular process uh, in the, the parliament, it was voted by the committee with amendments, it was voted by the plenary after amendments and so on. And we also created uh, for the other um, working group on EU social policy, which was linked to the liberal delegation to the EU summit uh, in Porto, which was dedicated in social policy. Uh, we've also uh, created a lot of uh, material and uh, input for the for our delegation there. Uh, you know, social policy can be a very controversial subject for uh, for liberals. So uh, again, it was a, a tough tough job to create something that could be the basis for discussions in the in the in the summit and could be accepted by everyone there and so on. So. We, we thought that uh, the working groups should have this kind of uh, concrete outcomes, uh, outputs and outcomes. And this is what we're mm -hmm. trying to continue doing uh, this year, focusing um, uh, on, on, on different topics uh, this year. We have one working group on uh, digital strategic autonomy, which is linked to an upcoming ELF study on the digital strategic autonomy. And we have another working group uh, on what we call uh, staged integration, so linked to EU enlargement uh, process. 
Uh, we had meetings in uh, Warsaw last month. We will have we had a meeting uh, last week in uh, Thessaloniki, and we will meet mm-hmm. again in uh, Dublin next month uh, during the ALDE Congress. Uh, and again, um, if we take the second working group on enlargement, we are trying to provide concrete policy recommendation or solution to the liberal family. The state's integration process is um, a, a, a very specific concept, as I said, it's a very specific proposal to renew or reignite uh, the EU enlargement process that has been dormant, <laughs> let's put it like this, for quite some time now. So it should be, yes, a decade almost uh, since 2013. Uh, with very little progress, generally speaking. And the concept itself is very simple. Right now, we have a very inflexible process of EU uh, enlargement, which is you're either a member or you're not. What we're trying to develop as a policy proposal is to um, adapt a little bit uh, the process and create stages in between stages or membership steps mm-hmm. if you if you like uh, meaning that uh, you know there is a gradual integration of candidate countries until they get to full membership full membership is still the number one priority and the end goal of the process but given some conditions are met or some criteria are met Candidate countries can uh, hope that they will be uh, integrated in various uh, structures within the EU framework. For example, they can be, they can have access to the single market before they are full members, or they can have a Schengen member uh, status before they are full EU uh, members, and so on. Almost everything quite uh, controversial because it has a lot of implications. Uh, and it's also, you know, dependent on uh, the wordings in the treaty and wordings in the uh, accession treaties and so on. But uh, we believe this is a solution to the dead end uh, that the EU enlargement process has hit in the, in the, in the past uh, decade, which creates a lot of serious implications, geopolitical implications, uh, implications on the domestic politics of the accession countries, mm-hmm. possibly implications on the future of uh, the European project uh, itself. Just to uh, set us on this conversation, because as you mentioned, there are different needs, but also different uh, processes for each country, and what some of them have to do through stabilization, association agreements, and then There's also questions, for example, Serbia is one of them where we, European Union, naturally can have some suspicious about that process. But to just, like I said, just give us a little bit of point of situation. We have Turkey, North Macedonia, Montenegro, Albania and Serbia. All these countries applied for it. The last one was Serbia in 2009 and Albania. And then we have the Kosovo-Bosnia-Herzegovina situation, which has their own mechanics. And then finally, or recently, Ukraine, Georgia, and Moldova. And of course, Ukraine and Moldova, we know pretty much the, the reasons why is that happening and at the speed that it's happening. But from the work that you guys did in Thessalonica, what do you think then are those solutions that you mentioned that 
to try to find the best way to have this conversation going and to have this process uh, keep flowing naturally. Because as you mentioned, and very correctly so, the entire project is uh, at stake with having the good decisions, having the right decisions being taken at the right time. So what is your uh, feeling on this? You're absolutely right. There is a lot of diversity in the candidate or potential candidate countries, uh, geographical diversity, historical diversity, cultural diversity. And this is um, a constant concern uh, for everyone who is working on the, on the, on the topic. It's, it's, it's also a headache for, for the European Commission. Let's not uh, forget, forget about that. There, there are no clear solutions uh, on that. What it means is that we cannot have one solution for everyone. We cannot have one process which is identical for everyone. These countries have different needs, different urgencies, different political systems. They have different level of uh, progress in different uh, topics, chapters mm -hmm. for negotiation. Uh, so far, the approach has been to group them with geographic standards. So the terminology is like uh, Western Balkans and Eastern Partnership uh, countries. That is not uh, helping so much uh, for, from what we from what we've seen in the past uh, one or two decades. It's not helping so much, and even in this way, we have um, more diversification within these groups. For example, we have uh, you know subgroups with, within the Eastern Partnership uh, grouping uh, of uh, countries. We cannot talk in the same way uh, for Armenia. Azerbaijan, and as we can talk about the, uh, as it's called, the association trio of uh, Moldova, Ukraine, and mm -hmm. Georgia. And from this grouping also, you can see, obviously, Ukraine standing out uh, because of the war and because of uh, the urgency of the situation there, but also the political will to engage and develop the partnership into something more concrete that will provide security uh, in the future and so and so on. So this is a, um, a very tough riddle to to crack um, that needs the way I see it tailor-made uh, mm -hmm. solutions. We have to create a process which is similar enough but at the same time allows for uh, flexibility both in the time frame and the uh, process itself and how it uh, develops and how it takes uh, into account mm -hmm. the differences in every country. Now, there is a way to do that. Constitutionally speaking, uh, every country is, uh, well, uh, the EU is already doing that to some extent. Because every signing of the accession treaty, the start of the negotiation, is a little bit tailor-made, but not enough, in our view. This kind of geographical categorization is not, uh, is not helping at all. If you, if you look at the Western Balkans, for example, Serbia is in a com completely different uh, category in its, uh, on its own. But you have countries like North Macedonia, for example, where accession negotiations could start any moment. It is a question why they really haven't started uh, yet. And this creates all sorts of problems then. Uh, for example, 
the population is getting impatient, anxious, disillusioned even with uh, the EU because they don't see they 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 are uh, you know um, motivation is decreasing. Uh, they don't see a, um, a reward for the um, changes that uh, have been implemented in the past uh, decade. They feel or they start considering alternative options for them um, and, and, and so on. So uh, we, both in, in, in the sense of, you know, how to deal with diversity and how mm -hmm. to create tailor-made uh, accession process for every country, um, uh, but also very importantly, the time frame to, to, to see the goal in, in the future, not uh, because as it is now, it is completely open sandbox you know they never know when if ever the integration mm -hmm. will uh, happen the accession will, will, will happen uh, and that is an additional point of concern let's say let me ask you then uh, a, f a quick follow-up on this one because this is so important what you just mentioned right now do you closer to the center of power the European Un Union in Brussels and working with Renew Europe and working with these groups, do you sense that urgency? Do you sense that sensitivity of having the processes flow uh, as straightforward as possible and, of course, solving for all the problems? Do you feel that? Because I do read often in the media that, and as you just said, things are not starting, things are not moving forward. So do you think that there could be a change of philosophy uh, in the near future where finally we have this thing moving forward in a very concrete fashion? To be honest, I haven't noticed any change um, in the official mm -hmm. language, not yet. This, this, is not a, this is not a criticism. The war in Ukraine happened unexpectedly for many people, uh, but we personally consider it a, a tipping point for a chain reaction of changes. I believe that it will create, uh, it, will, it will act as a catalyst for, uh, for example, when we talk for, for more uh, military defense and foreign mm. policy uh, cooperation on the EU mm -hmm. level. We can have a separate topic, a separate, a separate podcast for, for, for that if, if you wish. Uh, but uh, in the same spirit, I believe that it can be a catalyst also for uh, renewing interest, uh, uh, replenishing political will within the European Union for the enlargement in, in, in Western Balkans and uh, Eastern Partnership countries. Because obviously there is a security component in EU enlargement. It's not just, you know, this uh, project of good intentions of working together with everyone on the continent and, and so on. It's It has a, a, a very significant security component. Countries that are outside the EU framework are more exposed to foreign influence. And of course, uh, I'm not afraid to say they're more exposed to Russian and Chinese influence. There are uh, more uh, alternative competing narratives emerging in the area. Uh, I mean, competing and alternative narratives to the EU perspective uh, of these countries. And there are also political implications when it comes to the foreign policy of these countries, where we will see, we have seen, and we will see more cases 
of foreign policy decisions that are not pro-European. So mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a practical thing. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it contains a security uh, question there. We have to integrate. Uh, we have to, to look at uh, integration of Western Balkans and some of Eastern partnership countries as a geopolitical imperative. Uh, and that's the reason we are doing more work on, on, on this issue. And that's the reason we have uh, decided to create this working group on enlargement, focusing on on, on a concept um, that we call uh, st state integration, because we thought that this could reignite interest and uh, political will for to 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 renew the uh, the enlargement. Well, this is a fantastic point for us to interrupt our conversation because, as you said, we can continue. Uh, talking about this very important topic. And this is a message of hope from you and the work needed ahead. And I think this gives very good tools also to our listeners if they want to know more about it. And exactly in that, Antonius, please tell us where people can follow the work done by the research unit and also other working groups. Oh, we have a fantastic new website where you can find uh, everything. Our uh, communications department have uh, worked really hard on it, and uh, the result is uh, uh, is, is uh, very nice, both both aesthetically and practically. So the first thing would, would be to 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 visit the, the website, uh, subscribe to our uh, newsletter for external audiences, but also our internal newsletter, the Liberal Wire. And uh, last but not least, uh, follow on social media accounts, I mean, where all our work is constantly po posted by our fantastic comms team. I've been talking with Dr. Antonios Nestoras. He's uh, doing a fantastic work in the European Legal Forum. I must say that I'm also very privileged to have his time and his attention. <laughs> Sometimes some fights, but I don't know. <laughs> part of the of the deal Antonius thank you very so enjoyable very enjoyable <laughs> Antonius thank you so much for coming to the podcast thank you very much for the invitation looking forward to the next one I'm back just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts Spotify and Stitcher and if you feel like it give us a five-star review in that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas and now for some of the events organized by Elle for this week of May. On the 23rd of May, online and on Zoom, and organized by NEOS Lab, we have a conversation about a war in cyberspace, EU cybersecurity developments in times of war. This conversation will be held with Luigi Martino. Luigi is from the Center of Cybersecurity and International Relations and will be moderated by our colleague Dieter Fierbrand, the Scientific Director at NEOS Lab. And then on the 26th, also online, and this time organized by Elf Secretariat, Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, Project Polska, and LIMEC, we have the event Liberal Communications Network, Nonprofit Academy. This is a fantastic opportunity, and to know more about this Liberal Communication Networks, which has an extensive program and very ambitious objectives, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place.
This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and has the support of the Social Liberal Movement in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.